0: Glad to see you all this morning. I'm excited about chapters four and five. We're going to get into it. Before we begin, a quick reminder that we love questions. And so ask your questions either here live or online in our chat features. And Bov Mussey is going to be monitoring the chats online. And so if you've got a question and you simply don't want it to be online, then feel free to send her an email anytime during this class. And also a reminder that we collect questions throughout the week. And so if you've got questions, you either watch this back if it's not live, if you're listening to the podcast, or if you just have a bright idea during the week, then send Bub an email and we'll collect those questions and get them together for us the next week when we gather. A reminder as well that our podcast is collecting these lessons every week, and so if you do like to listen as you're driving or running or washing or you name it, those are available for you. Let's start with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Absolutely. Let us pray. God we give you thanks for bringing us together today, and we ask that you open us up. Help us to put down those things which put pressure on us, things day on us that cause us stress and anxiety and worry and concern, help us to put those things down. Help us to make space inside of us, that your spirit can fill us up, and that as your spirit fills us up. We are better able to walk this journey of love, to grow closer to you, to wrap our arms around those here in our St. Michael community and outside these walls, to remind them of your constant presence, care, and love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. So, we ended last week with Moses receiving the call, right? And we were you know, quite hard on ourselves, because we know that we receive these calls. We know that we are gifted. We know that God puts a call on us in order to go out and do things in the world to be changed and transformed, and we don't often like that call because it's not convenient. It doesn't look the way we wish it to, and so we can ignore God, and God still comes at us. And so in that moment when Moses is bargaining with God I hope that we can sympathize. I hope that we understand that feeling, that resistance, that bargaining, and perhaps can open ourselves up. Right now, wherever we are, whatever phase of life we're in, whatever skill set we think we have, God's calling us to something that's going to be a bit scary, and yet we're called And I hope that we can say yes. And so as we shift today, we're going to look at the way in which Moses responded to God's call. We're going to be in the second half of chapter four, and hopefully, if I don't talk too much, we're going to get all the way through chapter five. All right, so today's lesson is going to be in three parts. First part is going to be Israel's purpose. Part two is going to be Moses's return to Egypt. And part three is going to be making bricks without straw. It gets hard. So, first part, we're going to spend just a few minutes talking about Israel's purpose. This is actually not specifically any verse or chapter in the Bible. This idea of purpose is important for us to vet, because Israel, as we know, the Jewish people are the chosen people. We are familiar with that phrase. I hope that we know, having done Genesis a couple years ago, this idea of chosenness comes from the original covenant that God makes with Abraham. So we know that God has made covenants throughout time. That first covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, this covenant with Abraham makes a shift. It's the first covenant where we are asked to do something. Now it's a small at, well, I mean, it's literally a small ask. Um, It's a very small ask. It's a representation of our promise back to God as being chosen. And what was that? It was male circumcision. And so it was a small ask, but it was at least somewhat of an ask of us. We will see the Ark of Covenants, and we'll talk about this at some point in the next few years, where in the Ark of Covenants that God makes with humanity, more and more is asked with each covenant. And we're going to see that again at Sinai. When the Israelites come out of Egypt and they get to Sinai and they receive the new covenant and the law, more is asked of the people. And so there's a deeper and deeper investment in this covenant with God. With Abraham, not only is there this new covenant and this ask, there's a promise made. And the promise is that Abraham's descendants will at some point come in the promised land. They are chosen by God to have particular land, and that chosenness over time gets a bit confused. That's what I really want to talk about. When we talk about God's chosen people, it's sort of natural, especially in English when we talk chosen, that we conflate the idea of chosenness with preference or being better than, So it's very common that there's a misunderstanding that in some way, the Israelite people who become the Jewish people are chosen because then they are better. Or maybe they have the potential to be better. Or that in their chosenness, they can become the best. That we need to resist. We need to understand that chosenness is actually, in an odd way, more responsibility. Being chosen means you are more responsible. It is this idea that to whom much is given, much is required. In a sense, the Israelites writ large, the Jewish people writ large, have been chosen to then do something big in the world. And of course, if we look at the arc of the story, the bigness of their chosenness is to actually bear out God's salvation story in the world. They are asked in their chosenness to bear the truth of God out in the world, and by doing so, bring everybody, all of humanity, to God. Now, we know it doesn't quite work out that way. And the way that the story is told is that through many different experiences, whether that's moving to Egypt, going under slavery, exiting out of Egypt and being saved, going into the Promised Land and being victorious over all the people who are already living there, going into exile in Babylon, and on and on. In all these major moments, the question of chosenness becomes one of selectivity. In a sense, there's a pridefulness of being selected by God that then slides a little bit into entitlement. We see this very clearly in the Gospels. So as Christian people, we know the story that Jesus walked into. Jesus walked into a situation where the Jews were very clear how much better they were than everyone else. They were chosen. They created this law. They were doing things right, and other people were doing things wrong. And Jesus walked into this moment and said, That's not the point. The point of being chosen is to take responsibility for this godly work on earth. And so what happened in Jesus is a fulfillment of this messianic prophecy such that we then become the ones who inherit the responsibility. We then become the ones who are meant to go out and make disciples of all people. We now inherit this sense of chosenness. But it's not the privilege we might think it is. It is much more the responsibility that comes with being chosen. And so much of what we're going to do today is talk about the way in which that sort of service and responsibility shapes itself in the arc of the story. And it's a lovely opportunity for me to say, silence your phones. <laughs> okay. Any questions about Israel's chosenness, the idea of chosenness, the responsibility that comes with being chosen? This is a big idea, and it's going to be vetted very directly in the relationship that Moses has with Pharaoh, that Moses has with the Israelites, that the Israelites have when they receive this new covenant, and then begin this journey toward becoming the Jewish people. Questions or thoughts? I know you're listening because you're looking right at me. Okay. <laughs> there it is. Hello. Um, I guess that the Jewish people that didn't um, accept Christ as their savior don't know about the fact that they're not the chosen people anymore. Or that the chosen people the mantle test us. Okay, so that's an interesting comment. So The comment is, I'm going to try and tweak that, Kristen. What happens when the idea of chosenness and responsibility shifts? So I think there are a few ideas here. I don't know that we can say that the Jews are no longer chosen. I'm not sure that I would agree with that. I think that chosenness is, in a sense, a blessing of responsibility. Part of our history is, uh, the human influence in our history is very, colors it very distinctly. To be chosen does not necessarily mean others are not chosen. But we naturally think that, Right? If I'm chosen, no one else is chosen. It's sort of like, you know, if if your child asks you, you know, who do you love the most, you can pick any of them because you love the others the most too. And they hate that. I, I think that's so funny. I love you the most and I love them the most and I love them the most. That doesn't make any sense. Because we think when you choose someone, you are then not choosing others. Not exactly. You can choose many, and so that chosenness does not exclude others' chosenness. I think in Christ we see a new covenant, it is quite literally a new reality, a new story, a new testament, where we're doing something different. I have to believe the way the story is told that the ideal scenario was Jesus comes down, he says all these things, everyone says, my gosh, that makes such great sense, we should all be doing that, and everybody's on board, right? That didn't happen. And so Jesus wasn't looking to start a new religion. He was simply trying to unpack the truth with more depth. And that's a very... That's an important idea for us to keep in mind. Jesus wasn't necessarily doing new. Jesus was doing better. And so there is a more complete revelation in Christ, perhaps a full, complete revelation in Christ. But God's revelation before Jesus was not untrue. It was just not the complete. And so, as God makes these covenants over time, with each new covenant, the other covenants are not negated. They're simply built upon. And so, with Christ, we have a chosenness that does not usurp or supersede the chosenness of the Jews, but it doesn't mean that we are any less chosen. And so I know that's kind of complicated. I'm trying to say it more simply. So wasn't God's plan for them to rise up and, and take and accept Jesus? And if they didn't do that, then isn't Jesus more chosen? Let me ask you a question. <laughs> <laughs> Those of you online, you didn't hear the uh oh from the back of the room. Um, this is a question that was posed to me when I was in college, and I think it's quite profound. Do we think, do you think, that from the beginning, God always knew Jesus would be necessary? I think most Christians would say yes. I'm not so sure. I find it difficult to conceive... So, this is very interesting. It's super apropos to today because one of the things I wanted to talk about was the idea of hardening Pharaoh's heart. That's a, that's a problematic idea. I don't think that... First off, you've heard me say this before. I don't think that everything in the future has been planned. I think that we have a responsibility to respond to God. And so... God might even know how we will respond but we still have the choice to do so on our own. That free choice for me in my theology is absolutely critical. It is the foundation for everything. If we cannot choose, then love is coerced. And I don't think love is a coerced idea. I think love is true and it must be reciprocated freely. To that end, I find it problematic that God in the revelation, in the covenants of the story, somehow intentionally kept pieces back in order to set us up to actually need Jesus. What makes more sense to me in the God that I think is revealed in Christ is that at the very beginning with humanity in the garden, That love was revealed and fully and total and complete, and it didn't quite stick, and humanity got in the way. Then again with Noah, there was this renewal of a full love, and it didn't stick. And then there's a renewal of that covenant in Abraham, didn't quite stick. Then you get Moses, then you get David, then you get, there are multiple covenants that come along, and I don't think God has somehow only given us a part of it. But it's not until God, in a sense, really gets our attention in Christ that it seems to stick completely. Now, and when I say stick completely, we are all beautifully imperfect and all make mistakes. Every one of us has made a mistake already this morning. And in those mistakes, God's grace and love still can correct and right every wrong and clean us up and all of those things. It's possible to understand that as God spoke that didn't quite work. God then visited and it became writing that didn't quite work, and so God then had to come fully incarnate in the word in the world for it to actually stick. Now, interestingly, if we're just thinking in the world, right? Muslims would say that didn't quite stick either. And so God came again and verbatim wrote what he wanted. That then is the Quran. And so we have to understand that when we say a fuller fullest revelation in Christ, in a sense the Jews are like, what about us? Like it wasn't real well yes it was real but there was this fullness of the revelation in jesus well we're sort of in a similar place if we look at what islam teaches which is jesus was everything and was good and accurate and a revelation and all that sort of stuff fully true and we messed it up and so ultimately god had to come back and put it down in words that would not change. That's the reason why you do not translate the Quran. You do not read the Quran in other languages, you read it in Arabic because you cannot mess up the actual verbatim words that God gave us. So I kind of went way off on a tangent in that one. But the idea that is Jesus necessary from the very beginning. I'd like to think no, because we had a chance. We had a shot. God gave us this. Jesus didn't do anything, didn't say anything that hadn't been said. He just clarified. God did it himself. I mean, that's what we believe in Jesus, is God came down and did it himself. But it wasn't what God, it, it was still what God had been doing. God's love revealed prior to Jesus is still true. It was just not quite getting into us. And so he came himself. That's really the story. And I'd love to think that from the beginning, he didn't know he'd have to. Because that's part of the sacrifice. That's part of the love we see represented in Christ is God's love so much, he's going to come and do that. He tried all these other things that were still true, but since it didn't quite sink in with us, he still loved us so much that that's what he did. He came to really show us just how much he does love. Did I see a hand? Or were you stretching? Okay. Yes. Sorry, Kib, one second. Yes. That's right. Okay. So he tells, he gives the covenant to Abraham. All right. Was that a chance that he thought if he's the loving God, then he wasn't just going to love the Jews, he was going to love other people as well? Right? So you're asking when God made the covenant with Abraham? It was never exclusive yes. to Abraham's family, yes. correct? And then, as we know human nature, did he think that the rest of the world would would go along with Abraham? Yeah. Okay. Oh. So the question really is, was God's plan that really Abraham's descendants would do the godly work in the world, kind of bringing everyone in? I think it's a perfectly good way for us to understand that. Within our context, our Christian context, the idea that God was working out the plan through a specific group of people in a certain place and time, totally fine. All right ready for this? Now, follow me. I always begin with God is bigger than I think. I think that's part of what we need to always accept in our own humility, that God's always bigger, doing more than we ever think God can. So if you ever feel like you or think that you are somehow boxing God in and limiting and creating boundaries, I promise you you're wrong. So to that end, it is perfectly good to think God's working out a plan through Abraham. It is not, I think, the most faithful way to be to think that God was not also working out that plan with other people in other places at other times so what that really means you follow that thread is that you look around the world at people of faith many other traditions i'm not talking just abrahamic traditions but in other traditions around the world it is remarkable how very similar in essence world religions really are it is all about peace it is all about love charity caring for other people, and yes, small sects in different ways can take things way off base and go off the rails, but in general, the macro, those traditions all are very much based in the same idea. So if I start from the place of God's always bigger than I think he is, could he have been speaking with and revealing himself in other ways to other people in other parts of the world? Of course. Who am I to say God can't do that? Of course God can do that. God's God. God can do it every once. And so, for me as a Christian, I choose to follow Jesus because I believe that Jesus is this fullest revelation. But by choosing Jesus as the fullest revelation, I am also not, then, saying that God isn't breaking through in other places, through other people in other parts of the world. Of course God is doing that. God's everywhere trying to break through all the time. I find Jesus as the fullest breakthrough of God's revelation. But in the same way that choosing Israel does not mean others are not chosen, I choose for me. I would love for people to find that deep truth and transformation through Christ, like I have. But for me to say that God is so small, that all of these other people around the world have made up their stuff, that seems very, very self centered, very entitled. Oh, how's that? Cut that out and put that on YouTube. Here you go. Yes. yes um... How can we graft into our thinking Paul's analogy of two olive trees in Romans 11, where you have Israel and, and the Jewish people who, who derived from Israel as the cultivated olive tree, and then we as Gentiles um, coming from a wild olive tree that God has grafted us in. And, and apparently, as temporarily set aside, the Jewish people, they, you know, they've been cut <laughs> off, as Paul says, but then Paul says, Don't be arrogant because God is able to grab them back in. And then at the apex of his argument, he says, And so all of Israel will be saved. So I, I am not entirely sure how much audio gets on the stream. So, in a sense, repeat this. Paul has an image in Romans that ultimately says, The Jews are coming with us, right? That part of the message of Christ and the work of Christians, those who follow Christ, is really putting our arm around and bringing all the Jewish people along, and that their chosenness, in a sense, will bring them into God's fullness at some point. What I want to say is less about that argument and more about Paul. Paul is a very good salesman. Paul does his job well. And so if you imagine his context, I believe Paul believes that. But I think in the same vein as the chosenness argument, to say we are receiving this new revelation, we're not leaving the Jews behind, God's just doing a new thing, but it's in a sense connected to this line through time. And so everyone's going to kind of come along in the end what we need to do is stop short of saying that excludes everyone that's not part of that argument. And I think what happens with people very faithfully and well-intended is they read something into Paul that reinforces chosenness as being better than. And so the Jews are chosen, but Jesus did this thing that is true. Some of the Jews didn't come with Jesus. So how can we justify or rectify God choosing the Jews, but then kind of them being left out. That's a problem. And so the way Paul solves this problem is to say God's chosenness does not end. God's chosenness simply evolves. And so Jesus's chosenness is somehow a more global chosenness than perhaps the way the Jews understood their chosenness. But still, it's not necessarily excluding everyone else. I mean, if we know anything about Jesus, Jesus included everyone. It is inconvenient, because as we've already noted once today, which is very good to keep in mind, we would love to exclude some, right? Man, there are some people, not that I have a list, um, but, you know, (laughs) we all know people that we'd prefer not to have dinner with, right? Right? Um, the people that we would love to not spend time with, the people that have probably certainly not earned much, and yet Jesus includes everyone. So if you ever find yourself excluding someone because of your faith, you're doing it wrong. Okay? So there's that. I don't think that Paul ever— well, I won't say ever once— 90% 90% of what Paul is trying to do in his letters is encourage a group of people in a certain place in a certain time to follow Jesus more closely. We have to resist taking any of those moments and extrapolating them out. Any of you do statistics or finance or mathematical you know, modeling or anything like that, you know if you have some data... You can go a little bit farther than that data, but every time you step away from that core data, your conclusions become less and less good. And so in that sense of extrapolation, Paul can be applied in the small spheres in which Paul was working, but if we take most of Paul and make it global, stuff falls apart. And I said... In the parents' class here at St. Michael a few weeks ago, we were talking about marriage and healthy marriages and sexual um, identities within marriage and the way that sometimes church can make people feel like it's not a beautiful thing to share in marriage what God's given us in our human condition. And I said, well, much, that's pretty much all the problem of Paul. Because, basically, Jesus doesn't say anything about that stuff. Paul's the one who talks a lot about those things. And we've then taken Paul and put Paul on top of Jesus, and then think that's Christian, when it's really Pauline. Now, does that mean that there aren't some good ideas there? No, it doesn't mean there aren't some good ideas there. But for us to root our behavior and our theology only on Paul, when that's really not what Jesus talked about, eh, that becomes problematic. Jesus is not detail-oriented. There's your hot take for the day. Jesus is not detail-oriented. And we want the details. We want the fine print. We want to know what we can and cannot do. And Jesus just doesn't tell us that stuff. And it's so frustrating because then we actually have to include everyone. And it's so hard because we know some people are so wrong, Right? Sorry, that's, that's not Jesus. It is inconvenient, but it is true. All right, did I see someone else? All right, so we do have to talk about Moses, so let's do that. Um, okay, we've got two sections left today. Moses returns to Egypt. I'm not even I'm halfway down the first page of my notes. This is why I said hopefully we'll get through chapter 5. Okay, Moses returns to Egypt. Let's actually go to our Bibles. Chapter 4, verse 18. Here we go. 4.18. Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they are still living. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. Then the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. All right, we'll pause there. We are now in the part of the story where we are teeing up the biggest battle of the Bible. There is nothing bigger than what's gonna come between God and Pharaoh. It's a big deal. There are other, many, many other battles in the Bible, nothing like this. You'd have to kind of get to Jesus v. Rome later on in the New Testament if you really wanted to see another battle of this scale, except we all know Jesus isn't the fighter. And so we can call kind of Jesus versus Rome a battle, Eh, not quite the headliner for pay-per-view, right? We are getting to the fight of the Bible very soon. And this cosmic battle of kings is exactly what the storyteller wants to set up. You have Yahweh, the capital K King, And you've got Pharaoh, the lowercase k king. Pharaoh, as we know, believes that they are God incarnate in the world. And so for Moses to go back to Pharaoh and ask anything of Pharaoh is audacious. And what will ultimately happen, because we know the bones of the story, right? Is that Pharaoh is going to resist and Moses is going to go back to God and say, what do I do? And God will say, I got it. And then we have all of the different plagues and the terrible things, and then the Israelites go, but then Pharaoh thinks maybe not and chases them, and then all of Pharaoh's army dies in the water, and it's horrible, and they, the Israelites sing a song. That's the basic arc, right? Here's the problem. Look right there in verse 21. Perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. This is the biggest battle in the Bible. It will actually end up being horrible. After the plagues, the killing of the firstborn, the decimation of Egypt's army, innocent people will die. And why? the story tells us it's because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now I hope that we are all generous enough to find problem with this setup. What God is doing the way the storyteller tells the story is creating the problem he will then solve by killing people. And that's a hard story. It is the story. It's what we have. And I want to simply lift up that this idea is going to pervade our, our lessons for weeks as we go through all of the arguing and the plagues and everything. I want us to hold in tension this idea that the way the storyteller is telling the story is that God is acting upon Pharaoh to resist Moses... And then ultimately, the solution to that resistance is killing people. This is the moment when, good Bible scholars that we are, we should not ask the question, why would God do that? But instead, it's the better question, is why did they think God did that? Because they're telling the story, and we know hundreds, hundreds of years later, But obviously this kind of component was kept in oral tradition or else it wouldn't really be in that story. So we're not going to go too deep into that idea today. I just kind of plant that seed and we'll unpack that over the next few weeks. I will leave you, though, with one other idea about that. And I found this interesting in the commentary. I'd never heard this before, but in the commentary that we're reading along with this, there was the note that in the ancient world, the idea of emotion was linked to the stomach and that actually the idea of intellectual thought or logic or reason was linked to the heart. I love that note because in a sense, what our scholar in the commentary said is that we see hardened Pharaoh's heart and we think of an emotional stiffening When really, what the ancient world would have meant is to stiffen Pharaoh's resolve. It's a bit more intellectual. It's a bit more prideful, egotistical, systemic, not quite emotional. And so we will, as I said, unpack this as we go, but that informs a way of considering the story that what's really happening in that moment, when Pharaoh's heart is hardened, is actually perhaps a fanning of the flame of his ego, not control necessarily, but in a sense, allowing the strength, perceived strength that Pharaoh has to, in a sense, allow him to ignore the apparent power he's witnessing from God. Okay, we're gonna keep going. We're going to look at verse 24. So Moses is on the move. Verse 24. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. But Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Truly, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. Okay, we'll pause there. What? Um, So, (laughs) this is a very strange moment, and you might remember back in Genesis, Jacob encounters God and wrestles with God, and God puts his hip out, so this sense that God comes to somehow forcibly meet with humans is not totally unprecedented. It is within the thread of the tradition. But we have this moment where Moses has met God at the burning bush, argued back and forth with God about not wanting to go to Egypt. Finally, God convinces him. He gets up. He puts his family on a donkey. They're actually going back to Egypt. And then God decides to try to kill him? Very strange. But what we see in this story is that Moses, for some reason has not actually maintained the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, we know Moses is an Israelite. We know that the thread all the way down through the family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and on down into Egypt, they received this as a sign of the covenant. It is perfectly reasonable to think that Moses, born within this tradition would himself have been circumcised like a good Israelite because of the Abrahamic covenant. But then he goes off into the wilderness, finds and marries Zipporah, and they don't circumcise their son. It's a weird moment because in history in the Middle East, male circumcision was actually common. It's, it was not only the Israelites that did this. Now, it became a sign of the covenant as the story was told, but it wasn't as if it was uncommon in the Middle Eastern region for the non-Semitic peoples to also go through that same practice. So it seems very odd that Moses, whether culturally or religiously, would not have also circumcised his son. But that didn't happen... And Zipporah makes it happen. And so, once again, we have in this story Moses is saved from death by a woman. I noted before from the handmaids to his sister to his mother and now to his wife naming women is not so common in scripture. So, when a woman is named, she is important. We now have many women named, and each of those women, in a very specific way, has the courage to take action, decisive action, to actually save Moses' life. So again, this thing happened. As I noted last week, with the whole bargaining at the burning bush, why in the world would they tell the story? If you're thinking you want to build Moses up, this is not the story that builds him up. This looks, again, like Moses is careless or thoughtless or gutless. Whatever you want to say, Moses, this is not a good look for Moses. And so, what then is happening in this story? I think, like last week, this is one of those moments where we are encouraged to put ourselves in Moses' shoes, to put ourselves in Moses' story. How many times have we been face-to-face with a call, with our own little burning bush, and we don't really wanna respond, and we'd really like to ignore it, but it's so forceful, we just can't ignore it, so we say, okay, fine, I will do it. I will do the thing that I'm being called to do that I really don't wanna do. And then in the process of doing the thing that we didn't wanna do, we find some random excuse to actually go back on the agreement and then not do the thing that we finally said we would do, right? All the time this is us. Moses is again us. And he finds himself against a wall with an excuse to potentially turn and not do the thing that he was called to do. And yet the people around him continue to encourage him. Aaron is going to be an encouragement. Zipporah is going to be an encouragement. Miriam is going to be an encouragement. These people keep lifting him up. And so I want us One idea of this entire year around this character of Moses is Moses is not a superhero. He's just a guy who is surrounded by good people to keep encouraging him to say yes. He still has to say yes. He still has to actually say the yes and do the thing. But it's not alone. It's not on his own that he is able to respond to God's call in his life. It is not on our own that we can actually respond to God in the fullness with which God wants our response. We've got to have the people in our life. So that's the point of a church community. When Jesus says when two or three are gathered, he didn't say one. Now, it's okay. You can pray to God. You can be by yourself. That's okay. All my introverts, don't freak out. You can go all by yourself. It's fine. But we're not made for that. Our human weakness is not made to do this alone. We need each other. And we need to be the other to the people in our life that we love. Which is, that's when the Episcopalians have a problem, right? We don't want to say to anyone anything that would make them uncomfortable. We don't actually want to say to one another, we think you should go and do a thing that you don't want to do. Because that's kind of pushy, right? I mean, we don't want to be rude, we don't want to be pushy. Yes, go be rude and pushy. That's the message of the day. (laughs) Go be rude and pushy for the good, because you know there are people in your life who should be using their gifts in ways they are not using them, and it is not loving them to let them get away with it, in the same way that it is not them loving you to let you get away with it. That's right, (laughs) that's what I said, okay. Let's keep going. Verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs with which he had charged him. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Aaron reconnects with Moses. Aaron is now Moses's mouthpiece. They get into Egypt. They meet with the leaders. They do all the stuff God told them to do, right? The staff on the ground and whatever, and Aaron said the things that God told Moses to say, and the people believed. This is a really good moment. Can you put yourself in Moses's shoes? He was scared about this. He didn't think he could do it. He shows up to Egypt, Egypt gets all the people together, does the stuff God said to do, and they believed and they worshiped and they bowed down. And Moses is probably like, sweet, this is gonna work, right? He's like, we're in. This is so gonna be worth it. Then chapter five. Okay, so I just simply want to say, we are there. Moses is there. He's back in his home, and then we get to chapter 5. Oh, I don't have time. Okay, here we go. Let's just read it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has revealed himself to us. Let us go a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he will fall upon us with pestilence or sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh continued, Now they are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, as well as their supervisors, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. That is why they cry. Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid upon them. Then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. We'll pause there. Man, life gets harder fast. Moses, he's feeling good, right? Everybody believed and they were worshipped and they bowed down. He was like, come on, let's go to see Pharaoh. And he walks in, he says, hey, Pharaoh, let them go. And Pharaoh says, what? Are you kidding? I mean, it's a ridiculous request, right? The entire economy of Egypt is based on their labor, What is Moses thinking? And then it's as if Moses pivots a little creatively. Wow, okay, okay, not let them go. How about a three-day pilgrimage out to the wilderness to have a festival? What is he thinking? At what point in history did slave owners let their slaves have festivals? (laughs) At what point in history do slaves get vacation time? This is not a thing. And so Moses is immediately hit against this brick wall. And Pharaoh says, so that you never come back and bug me again, I'm going to take away the straw that the laborers are using, make their labor harder, because what's the best way to undermine Moses? Turn the Israelites against him. That's what's going to happen. The Israelites were all, yay, Moses, and then, that went away very fast. Not only did they have to keep producing the bricks they were supposed to produce, but now they had to go and, and harvest the straw they needed for the bricks rather than being provided with it. All of this complicates the story. It would be great if the Israelites were unified, and Moses then could just go and do the thing that he was called to do. But actually, Pharaoh is resisting him, and now the Israelites are mad at him too. So Moses is caught in this vice. Pharaohs know Israelites' anger, and he's standing there with poor Aaron trying to hold the line. And Moses is going to struggle to hold this line. The story is going to ultimately be The people complain to Moses. Moses complains to God. God tells Moses to keep on. So he goes and says something to Pharaoh again. And Pharaoh says no. And the Israelites get mad. And then Moses goes and gets mad at God. This will happen over and over and over. And it's not just in Egypt. They're going to get out of Egypt. And the same thing is going to happen in the wilderness. We are hungry. Moses, why did you bring us out here? And Moses will say, God, why did you bring us out here? And God will say, I told you why. And I'm going to give you the stuff you need. Stop it. And then he'll tell the Israelites, and they'll say, okay. And then they'll be, you know, then they get bitten by snakes. And then why are we out here, Moses? And then Moses will go back to God, and God will say, stop it. You're going to have what you need. Go tell them. And then they'll get what they need. It happens over and over and over. And in fact, at some point in the story, not till next, you know, the spring, we're going to get to the point at which Moses doesn't go back to God. And he ends up acting on his own. And that becomes the reason he doesn't go to the Promised Land. And so this cycle happens over and over and over. It's actually, it's silly how many times this happened. It's ridiculous. And so the story, for a storyteller to structure a story in the same literary loop happens again and again and again. I hope we have all taken enough English classes To understand that is a particular kind of idea that we are supposed to really understand and we see that first loop happen right here. Moses thought he was just gonna sail on through and he hit a wall here and he hit a wall here and he's gonna have to hold the line because he sort of agreed to do so and it's gonna be hard. Now I do want to talk for one minute, five minutes, on the complexity of service, the idea of the word service. We see in chapter 5 a version of the same Hebrew root word used many different ways. We see it used as both service, as work, as labor, as worship, as slavery, as servitude. We see it used multiple different ways. It's not the same Hebrew word. It is the same etymological-rooted Hebrew word. What is interesting about this is there is in the language, if we kind of dig it a little bit, a very explicit link between the idea of slavery, servitude, service, and worship. I hope that kind of seems odd, because we in English— separate all those ideas out in a pretty explicit way. Most of us as Christians, particularly wealthy Christians, have found, and by wealthy I mean American, not park cities. I mean just like Western Christians, all of us wealthier than most in the world, that Christianity has become very much about adoration, we come and we adore God, and we, that adoration happens in worship, and then we have somewhat slipped into this idea that our call is primarily for adoration, and it is not, and nor has it ever been. Adoration's always been a piece of this, but it has never, from here all the way through the New Testament, has never come close to the importance of the idea of service to God. And by service, we really do mean work. So the Israelites are serving. They are at Pharaoh's service because they are working. When Moses says, let us go out into the wilderness and have a festival where we will sacrifice and worship, God, that sacrifice and that worship is actually rooted in the same idea of work and service. God calls the Israelites, and it continues through with the Jewish people, it continues through with the message of Jesus, most often, into service. Service is not prayer and adoration. Service is going and doing work, and it is in the work that we actually praise God most, that we actually love God back most. And so one of the themes that we will continue with throughout Exodus is the way in which service is tweaked and turned and twisted and molded, but loses its connection over time. As people who are seeking to follow God whether it's in general or following God through Jesus. Our call has been and remains to actually be at God's service. So learning, prayer, adoration, all very good, necessary to help us in our formation. But if we are not at God's service in the world doing work, we're actually not doing what God calls us to do we are falling short of what it actually means to seek after God and to respond to God in a way that God wants. That service is critical. And it's an idea that I think can be a big challenge to us and one that will continue to hit as we go forward. All right. I appreciate you all very much. Send us your questions this week and we'll be able to address them next week. And we'll check the chat online as well. Thank you all.